Let's pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock, our redeemer, and the giver of abundant life. Amen. Well, that's kind of a fun story, isn't it? I mean, you have to admit, people don't normally think of Jesus as the life of the party type. Yet here he is, making sure that the party doesn't run out of wine. Party that's already gone on for a while. Now I know this is a different culture than Northeast Minneapolis. It might make more sense to us perhaps if Jesus turned the water into craft beer. But I think some of us can still appreciate the significance of the story. Or better yet, on a day such as today, uh, for Minnesotans, it might qualify as the ultimate miracle. You know where I'm going with this, right? If the Vikings broke their curse. But back to the story. The truth is, in a world like ours, where so many people think of God and church as a party pooper, this story sends a different message about God who affirms life, even abundant life, and letting your hair down a bit. Might be too late for me on that one, but you get the point. This story goes way beyond God giving his thumbs up to people having fun with each other, drinking wine and celebrating a wedding, although clearly these things are good. Indeed, the world, <laughs> as we as we know, is full of people who love to party, don't need a reason to party, and are always looking for a good time. Yet many of them are not exactly spiritual giants or our preferred role models. For Jesus, the miracle at the wedding of Cana is not just an excuse to keep on partying. According to John, <clears throat> as Jenny reminded us, this was the very first miracle of Jesus, and hence, it's a statement a declaration about who Jesus is. It's a revelation of how God wishes to meet us. Not primarily as judge, but as life giver. In this wedding miracle, the celebration is a vision of what God intends for us all. A feast of joy, blessings and the fruits of the earth shared in community with others. And this feast overflows like many M&Ms, and it goes on forever. And it is vital to point out, it is pure gift, unmerited, unearned, given because it is God's pleasure to give it to us. And so, the story. Weddings uh, in this culture were major celebrations, as they are today, but those wedding celebrations lasted several days and, and often uh, an entire week. Though part of the wine supply was provided by the guests, it was the responsibility of the groom, as the host, to make sure that there was enough wine to last the entire celebration. Kind of a big responsibility. Jesus, his disciples, and his mother were guests at this wedding party, and it would not have been unusual for Jesus 
and his disciples to be at such a celebration where there was drinking. I mean, we know from the Bible that Jesus was accused by the Pharisees, the keeper of the good religion. He was accused by them of eating and drinking and having just generally too much of a good time. To them, a serious religious figure was supposed to be somber and shaming of others, not enjoying food, drink, and laughter with the unworthy. Well, Jesus clearly didn't fit that mold. So, the wine runs out before the celebration is over. Not good. Major social embarrassment for the groom. Jesus' mother somehow found out and told Jesus, presumably before the rest of the guests knew about this. Now, it's not clear exactly what Jesus' mom expected Jesus to do at this point. I mean, if John is correct, Jesus hadn't yet performed a miracle publicly. This was his first one. So his mom was not necessarily assuming, you know, he would do one here. One commentator suggests that since uh, much of the wine supply was dependent on the guests, and since Jesus and his disciples had very little means, it's possible they didn't bring much by way of gifts, wine, to the wedding. As a result, the shortage may have been caused by Jesus and his disciples' presence at the party. We don't know. But if so, uh, Jesus' mother sharing the fact that the, the wine uh, ran out takes on a whole new tone, kind of like uh, Jesus. Now they're out of wine because the guests didn't bring enough. You better do something, you know, like go and buy some more or something. We don't know. The nuances of this conversation are, you can read all kinds of things into it. At any rate, Jesus' response is curious and a bit prickly. Well, what, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. On one level, this could be interpreted as a rather typical mother and son exchange. Mom, mom, it's not our problem, okay? So don't put me on the spot. You know? I like his mother's response here, though. She seems to have a pretty good read on, on who Jesus was. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. She seemed to know that Jesus wouldn't just sit on this one, right? And sure enough, he didn't. Jesus asked the servants to fill up uh, six jars of water, and those are big jars, draw some of the water out, bring it to the chief steward. They did, and when the steward tasted the water, which had now become wine, he called for the groom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have served the best wine for now. And think about it, six jars of 30 gallons. Yeah, that party's going to last a while, huh? End of story. So what does John make of this story and, and, and what do we make of this story? Uh, without a doubt, this was, uh, for starters, an act of compassion saving the groom from the shame of running out of wine. But the miracle is much more than that. The final sentence tells us uh, that Jesus did this miracle to reveal his glory. And his disciples believed him. So, this sign identified who Jesus was, namely the long-awaited Messiah, it revealed what God wants for us, a really cool party that just keeps on going. And it reveals 
who gets invited to the party? More on that in a minute. So, first of all, this was a sign that Jesus was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah who would bring the messianic age, uh, the kingdom of God that's referenced often, where everything gets worked out the way God wants it to be. Something we can experience now episodically, but is not fully realized until the next life. We might think of it as heaven, but of course, we often experience some of heaven right here, or can. It's offered to us. So, uh, a sign Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, Secondly, Jesus' miracle and the prophecies that they fulfilled tell us what God wants for us. There are many descriptions of what this messianic age will look like in Scripture. There are images of peace and restoration, such as, and the lion will lie down with the lamb. Peace. The blind will see. Restoration. The desert will bloom. More restoration. There are also many images and prophecies of celebration, abundance, and wine. In Zechariah it says, Their hearts shall be as glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and rejoice. Their hearts shall exult in the Lord. In the book of Hosea it says, They shall flourish as a garden. They shall blossom as the vine. Their fragrance shall be like the wine of Lebanon. And as Amos vividly describes, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I think you get the point. Hills overflowing with wine, the fragrance in the air. Now, uh, time out here. I mean, those who, just a word, to those who don't drink or can't drink, at this point, they, they might say, oh, great, you know, I guess I'm left out of the messianic age. Rest assured, that this is not about alcohol, <laughs> per se, but about the gift of life. It's about abundant life, as Jenny suggested. All the wine imagery here uh, signified the joy of an abundant life that is overflowing and will never end. And this is why John uses this story as Jesus' first miracle. By turning water into wine, Jesus is fulfilling many, many prophecies that have been established for centuries. So let let me ask this question. Is this the image people in our world have of God, church, religion? Jesus turning water into wine? Well, usually not. Often residents of our world see God and church as the bearers of bad news not good. You know, if you're, if you're having fun, it must be a sin. Right? Studies show that the vast majority of people who don't go to church increasingly, increasingly view church as judgmental much more than life affirmed, more anxious to pass judgment than to love and to embrace and build unity. If we have such good news, how come we're so good at making people feel bad out there? 
Or put positively, how could we communicate God's love and God's winemaker skills more effectively? Any ideas? For us, it is also a reminder of the blessings in our lives that continually come our way. And sometimes we either miss them or we take them for granted or we fail to recognize there's a miraculous dimension to it. At the wedding uh, of Cana, the wine steward and maybe many more had no idea the miracle that had been performed. They just knew that they got to keep drinking wine. Pretty good deal. What if we lived life believing that all our blessings were gifts, even miracles, of love given to us by God? Wouldn't life be richer? Uh, third, Jesus offered a very symbolic gesture about who has access to this party and how we access the abundant life. The 30, gallons, the 30 gallon jars of water that he turned to wine were normally used partly for sanitary purposes, washing hands and feet, but also to make oneself ritually clean before God. You know, wash away the dirt on your character so that God will love you. It's no accident that Jesus used those very same jars to serve up the new wine. The old-time religion signified by those jars was you know, us cleaning ourselves to become acceptable to God. In this story, the same jars are used for something quite different, something that replaces the old-time religion. Instead of using these jars to clean ourselves up, God uses these jars to pour us the best wine that we've ever had. The meaning is clear. It's not our move to ascend to God and prove our worthiness, but God's move to bring the party to us. Can you accept such a gift? Or are you too proud? Do you have to prove yourself? In Jesus, God has come to us in our very midst, to give to us the wine of joy and celebration and abundance. As Marcus Borg points out, we are invited to a wedding feast where the wine never runs out. What if this was the invitation that we could somehow extend to our neighbors more effectively? It's been pointed out how many folks in our world struggle with shame, the sense that I, as a person, am either worthless or simply worth less than the person next to me. We talked about this at our book club uh, last Wednesday at Parkway Pizza. How people in life struggle with something, and everybody does, of course, and then may feel unworthy of God or even going to church at all because of their struggle, and they just find other things to do where they don't feel bad. Could be due to divorce, chemical addiction, unemployment, mental illness, low self-image. The list goes on and on. Kind of includes all of us. The end result is that the task of making ourselves ritually clean and worthy is just too big of a task. And it really is. There's just not enough water in those jars to get the job done. So why bother at all? And then we see that God says to us, don't bother trying to clean yourself up. 
I've turned that water into wine, and I'm offering it to you because you're worth everything to me. So drink up and give thanks. Amen.